Welcome to Better Than Nothing. I'm Ken Root, a veteran of agricultural journalism. I've lived an exciting life that allowed me to make many friends. Better Than Nothing is my self-deprecating way of saying what you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Hello everyone, this is Ken Root. I am joined by Gene Millard, the uh, never-satisfied farmer. My friend from St. Joe, Missouri, a longtime farm broadcaster, station manager, and in his heart, a farmer his entire life. Gene, how are you doing? Absolutely terrific, Ken. Good to hear from you. Well, the same with you. Tell me, uh, there in uh, Missouri, define your area for folks. How was the planting season? This was an excellent planting season. Uh, Started out a little cool. Uh, but dry. We uh, we ended last year in the fall very dry, and we just did not have much overwinter moisture and no early spring rains. So soil conditions were ideal to let the planters roll. And in our area, we're here in northwest Missouri, uh, for crop insurance, uh, May 10, I mean April 10, is the uh, early planting date uh, to get started. Uh, for full insurance. You can plan a little earlier than that if the conditions are right. And there were a few guys that were in the field uh, planting before the 10th of April. But, uh, you know, that was about Easter this year. And we were prepping ground before Easter uh, on Thursday and Friday and a little on Saturday. Then we decided, well, we're going to take, uh, you know, the Easter weekend off and so the planters didn't roll to our place until Monday, and that was the 10th of April. So it worked out really well. It's awfully nice to plant in mellow conditions, and that's kind of what we had this year, very similar to last year. And amazingly enough, our planting dates for corn were almost identical to last year. Very unusual for that to happen, but sailed right through. And then immediately started soybeans and finished up everything on May the 5th. And that's normally when we start planting soybeans. So you'd have to say we had an early planting season. Now there's a few acres left to plant, but I tell you the guys with 16, 24 row planters, when you're planting you know, 20 acres an hour with a 16 and 30 acres an hour with a 24 row planter and there's lights on those things, So you can just get a lot of crop in the ground awfully fast. We never could get uh, warm enough up here in our part of the world to start planting. Uh, We had similar conditions to yours, uh, dry, uh, in uh, much of all of the state of Iowa, really. But it kept staying cold. You must have been on the opposite side of those uh, cold fronts than we were. Well, it was cool. It never did really warm up. I mean, we'd have high temperatures about 60. I kept watching the soil temps. We had enough sunshine, 
that there was enough radiation apparently to uh, get the soil temps up to about 50, 54 degrees when we started planting. And that's kind of our trigger. We like to not put anything in the ground until soil temperatures are, are rising, 50 degrees and rising. Now, this time they were above 50 degrees, but they weren't rising very fast. The calendar said go and ground was right. Our conditions here, we can switch from too dry to too wet overnight and can be rain delayed for two or three weeks. And so given the opportunity, most of the guys in this area, uh, once they drop that flag to go, it is nonstop. It just roll until you get it finished. Gene, what uh, percent corn and percent soybeans are you on your farm this year? We're not quite 50-50. A few more acres of soybeans than corn. Traditionally, in this geography, uh, we can be competitive with uh, about anywhere in Iowa in soybeans. But corn, uh, it all depends on Mother Nature. We We just seem to get too many really hot days there in July that uh, takes the top end off our corn yields. And so uh, from a agronomic perspective, the potential for average or better yield on soybeans is better than uh, on corn. And so that's kind of the way it's evolved. But we try to do a rotation where there's never more than two years of soybeans back to back. And, and you're kind of careful about how you do that. And weed control is a big issue. Did you have any innovations this year? You know, you tell me you never try to do it the same way twice. Or do you have any innovations that you may want to put in effect in the future that you're seeing on the horizon? Well, one of the things that we did different this year, we we traded planters and got a new uh, Kenzie 16-row planter. And we'd had a Kenzie 16-row split row to where we're planting beans and in 15-inch rows and, and corn in 30s. The price of the planter got to be a little obscene. There was a $100,000 difference between a 30-inch th- row planter uh, the, then, and then the one with the, the split rows with 15 more units on it, which is understandable why it would cost more money, but the differential there was significant. And we had a couple of neighbors that really had been in narrow rows and went back to 30-inch row soybeans. And maybe it's the genetics of some of the varieties that will bush out and, and canopy. And I, it's just a matter of uh, economics in some respects and they, and the weed control. Enlist has been a herbicide that's come along that has really, really helped our weed control issues in soybeans because water hemp is the persistent problem. I don't care where you are in this part of the world. Uh, that's the one that you just hate to see. And uh, it's done a really good job. We've had just excellent weed control the last couple of three years. So we neighbors that we have that went to 30 inch rows last year said they didn't see any difference in yield uh, between their 15s and their 30s. Weed control is the key. Now we have a product that will do that. Now, as long as that continues to work, I suppose that's a, a good decision, but we'll we'll tell uh, see what time we'll tell. What about your corn hybrid? What did you plant? We use the yield monitors uh, pretty extensively in in keeping tabs on varieties that that perform well uh, in our geography and soil type, and because and we do have a variable soil type. We don't plant all of one hybrid, but. Uh, 
uh, it's been consistent uh, of one uh, genetic family that seemed to perform better than the average. So I'd say the two thirds of our, our acres was in that variety. And we plant anywhere from 110 to 115 day uh, maturities in this zone. And uh, they, they perform pretty well for us. And there's not a great deal of differential between them. But again, it all depends on weather and, and when the heat hits and when you get the nice rain. And one of the things we've done the last couple of years is we do a lot of top dressing and split applications on nitrogen. We actually apply nitrogen at three different times, uh, pre-plant with anhydrous. So we put on about 30 pounds of N uh, at uh, with, the, with the burned down herbicide and then come over the top uh, about the 1st of July with uh, another 30, 40 pounds of N over the top. And that has really uh, paid off, uh, at least uh, the last couple of years uh, from our uh, few acres that we didn't apply that to and uh, did the comparison. It was significant. Well, there's an innovation right there. One last thing on your corn. What was your population per acre? We we try to run right at 30,000. I know that if you've got a deep soil that you can push that up to 34, 35,000. But in our soil type and our uh, weather conditions that can put a lot of stress on uh, there at pollination and post-pollination time and ear fill, uh, we find that about 30, 31,000 is it. And that's one of the tricky things with the brand new planter. I don't care whether what color the planter is, whether it's green, red, or blue, uh, it takes a little finesse from the technician to get it fine-tuned to where its actual performance is what you expect it to be. And, you know, you can adjust that population on these newer planters right on your monitor system. And we've got an ag leader system in this Kinsey and it performs really well, but uh, getting that consistency of plant population where you want it has been one of the issues that our tech has been working with this spring. Gene, you're a longtime host of AgriShop, a Saturday morning radio show where that you talk machinery with people all the time, and most of that was used machinery. But if you were to look at the new stuff today, um, are we changing the mix of uh, kinds of tractors that are out there, say? Are there any? I'm hearing that Fint is kind of making an impact in the market if it can get enough service technicians that can take care of it like John Deere and Case take care of theirs? Well, I think there you hit the key, and it's service after the sale because, like I say, it doesn't make a difference what color uh, that equipment comes out of the factory. They all have excellent technology, but uh, that technology has to be managed, and unless you've got a service department that really understands that technology, and can come diagnose the issue and to actually do the repair if necessary. That's just a key. You've got to have service. We we had one issue this year at planting time. We were we were within three days of being finished planting, and the front wheel assist on the planter tractor decided to give out and was leaking oil. It it's a pretty complicated issue to take off and repair. And it took a technician from the dealership to come out and, and get it removed. That took about a day. And then it took a day to get it put back together. And then it had to be recalibrated with the auto guide system because the uh, steering up there, uh, you know, is all tied together. It's technology. 
And so you had to have another technologist come out and uh, pre-program the, the auto steer to where it actually matched up with where the AB line is. And so it's not as simple as just nuts and bolts and, and putting a few snap rings on and putting it together. There's just a lot of technology in every little aspect of it that you wouldn't even think about. You know, if our father's generation were listening to this podcast, they would say, what are you talking about? The <laughs> exactly. technology advancements have been incredible. And in recent times, they seem to have expanded and increased at an increasing rate. So I'm amazed at, uh, at all the things you've accepted, first of all, and secondly, how articulate you are on them now that you understand them. Well, I don't know as I fully understand it. Uh, I let my son do most of the uh, uh, work on that computer system and the guidance system and all that in the tractor system. But he made a comment to me there when we were uh, broke down that needed to get that front wheel assist uh, repaired. Well, we couldn't take the planter. We have another tractor available to put on the planter. But holy camoles, it <laughs> major, it, it, there's just no way that you can just unhook that tractor and put another one on it. It's not like the old days when you had a John Deere 7,000 planter, you pulled a hitch pin and a couple of hydraulic hoses and you could put another one on there. But this one's all hooked up with electronics and auto guide and, and systems and auto row shutoffs and PTO pumps and air systems. It's just a lot of technology that once you get it set up, it's fine, but it doesn't move from one unit to another without a lot of issues. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, who's the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. I've worked with them for the last 17 years and worn their hearing aids for that length of time, and I have had excellent results. Taylor, dementia is of concern of people as we get older, and I understand there are several modifiable risks that you can employ. Could you tell us about those? Yeah, sure can. And so the studies were done by Johns Hopkins, um, Stanford, Cambridge University, so world-renowned um, you know, research centers. And what they found was there are 12 risk factors that you can actually modify you know, in your life. Now, they broke it down by age under 45, 45 to 65, and 65 and above. Under the age of 45, proper education, so being well-educated is the number one thing you can do under the age of 45. Between the age of 45 and 65, obesity, alcohol consumption, blood pressure, brain injury, and hearing loss. So the, between the age of 45 and 65 is actually the, the number one thing you can do in that age bracket is actually treat your hearing loss. So it's not an age-related thing. So between 45 and 65, over 65, smoking, depression, social isolation, air pollution. And when you talk about air pollution, it's not just being out and about in a large city. There are actually carcinogens in a wood burning stove that can lead to one hearing loss, but also um, things you can do for dementia. So it's not just out and about in large cities. Um, lack of physical activity and diabetes. Um, it can actually prevent or delay up to 40% of the dementia cases by modifying these pieces. And when you look at all those 12 Nine of those are actually correlated to an untreated hearing loss. But the number one thing you can actually do out of all 12 
and do it between the age of 45 and 65 is actually treat your hearing loss. So when they talk about hearing loss being a, a, a very important thing, treating your hearing loss is the most modifiable thing you can do to help offset dementia. And wearing hearing devices or treating your hearing loss can reduce dementia symptoms by up to 75%. So studies are showing not only that hearing loss plays a critical role in health conditions, you know, dementia being the, the biggest one, but also treating your hearing loss is not the number one thing you can do um, to help with dementia. That is very interesting information. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can call them at 877-955-4020. A good farmer will never forget 4020 as the last four digits. Or you can go online at iowahearing.com. I want to change directions here on an area that's probably sensitive, but again, you work the edges and you work the middle. Right now, there's billions of dollars that are being funneled from the government into incentives to get people to move to solar and wind, uh, uh, alternative energy. And agriculture kind of sets in the middle of all this because these wind towers and these solar farms are going up in agricultural areas. I know you have put some wind towers on your farm, and I know you're a number cruncher too. So can you tell me from the economics of it what you looked at to decide to let the wind tower people come in and build them on your farm? Well, this was about in 2016 when this happened at our area here. And it, and by the way, wind tower expansion is still going on at a rapid rate up in North Missouri and Atchison County area. Good farmland country up there uh, and all up into Iowa, as you're well aware. But our decision came down to, okay, we're on the very tail end of this project. We can say no, go on and finish your project without us or just depends. We work with the wind uh, construction company in terms of where the location of these turbines would be. And so that they did not interrupt one single acre of our productive area. In fact, it enhanced it because where, where we had field access that was uh, grass strips or whatever, they built a, a solid gravel, almost concrete like a uh, road into those turbines so they could do the maintenance and, and all that later on as they have for the last several years. Well, those, those roads are positioned exactly where we wanted them. And I told them exactly where to put the underground transmission uh, lines so that they would be in a, what would be considered a normal uh, border easement, just like any other utility, so that they're not interfering with whatever you want to do out there on your land. But this is where it gets a little sticky, because in some areas, they were really interrupting uh, the normal activity. But the other consideration is, what is the economic scenario. Well, for one thing, this is about a hundred tower wind farm. It generated uh, over, oh, I forget the number now, but it was around $800,000 to the local school district in taxes. And so the, actually there's more be, uh, money being funneled uh, into the tax base than 
anything else for the than the individuals. When we looked at it, okay, we could position in our little farm uh, three turbines on 120 acres. And we figured what that would add in terms of revenue to the corn and the soybeans. And we just looked at it as another crop at that point. Now, economically, it made extremely good sense. From a negative side, it's the visual that seems to be the largest complaint. There was a lot of opposition in our area to the construction of this wind farm to start with. And those that were adamantly opposed were very adamantly opposed and did not hesitate to express their opposition and sometimes carried on their distaste for the operation to uh, those of us that had a turbine <laughs> well past its construction. Uh, and some of those reasons were perhaps valid, but some actually were not valid. There haven't been, you know, all the bald eagles hit uh, by wind turbine. Uh, all the birds have not disappeared. We, we farm right next to a state conservation project of about 4,500 acres and a lake. So we had a lot of migratory waterfowl. They, those suckers are smart. Uh, we had swans that flew right underneath them, right over to our pond and right into our stock fields. We had lots of swans uh, early spring, late winter, and ducks, and we still had ducks. And so, you know, that was not a, that was not a valid argument. Uh, the biggest complaint is visual, and specifically at night when the beacons on top, which are FAA regs, uh, blink all at the same time. So you're stretched out over like 40 miles and you got this string of red lights going blink, blink, blink. And it's really obnoxious. Uh, and I think there's a way surely that they can solve that issue. But it is one of those things that if you live in it very long, you soon learn just to ignore it and go on down the road. But it is an issue. There's only been a few nibbles about solar farms in this area. I'm aware of one. Uh, and it, they're located right along major power lines, uh, main distributional power grid lines. Uh, but there's really not been any commercial development yet uh, here, in, here in this area. Well, I wanted you to talk about that because you can, because you think uh, strategically. Um, and the emotional side, uh, you know, it's not the first time we've been down this road of people saying, you know, we don't want this in our area. I remember in the Agritalk era, we were talking about hog farms expanding and people right. eating hogs for somebody else. And whether it was true or not, you never knew. But one man called in and he said, uh, I uh, decided I was going to start feeding a 2400 head on a feeding floor for a integrator and he said i opened my mailbox one day and there was a dead pig in it yeah, and uh, sort of the, sort of the godfather issue in rural america but it was um it was interesting the pushback we have some solar farms up in this area of the world especially up into wisconsin and the locals next to them just hate them but they're behind the curve. I mean, you can't fight those corporations once the corporations have already got everything set up and they come in because they're anticipating you're going to fight them. And in general, you can't do so. And when I suggested to this man that he sell his farm for an inflated value and move somewhere else, uh, if he could have got to me, he'd have shot me. So <laughs> really, um, it's a, there, there's, no, there's no middle ground in some cases with people 
because of the disruption they feel like it causes. Back to the wind towers, though, they really don't take up much of your land, even if they sat in the middle of a field. The footprint's not that big, is it? No, it's it's probably uh, no more than 30 foot and 40 foot in diameter. I mean, I farm right up next to it. I just circle around, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of tough to do with the corn head, but soybeans, you know, it's easy to plant within three feet of them. Uh, just try to avoid hitting anything. It, but it it's not it doesn't take much of a footprint uh, as far as the land surface. Not like a, solar farms look to be ideal if they were located in Nevada, you know, or somewhere out in the desert country where the sun shines all the time. But here, I've got a neighbor that puts solar panels all over his uh, garage building down here on both the north and the south side, and the sun doesn't shine half the time during the winter. Um, so if we had cloud cover, well, how much energy are you really generating? It doesn't seem to be very efficient. I was in Arizona and my wife is a business person. And she said, why in this climate, is there not more solar? And, uh, it's just that people don't want to put it up. Uh, it's, uh, but the incentives are, are growing. The incentives for all this are getting pretty attractive, not necessarily just for you, but for companies that are doing it. So they're going to be knocking on your door. They're going to be offering you things. And uh, in your case, you know, you it's a crop. I, I like that comment. I don't know everybody would agree with it, but I do like the comment. It's just another crop. Well, the only thing that is really negative, and I fully understand it, now I'm in the camp. There is way too much government influence in this decision-making. It needs to be based on solid economic conditions without requiring some gigantic public money being thrown at it and to try to influence people to do exactly what the government wants you to do. And there's so much regulatory engagement here with the federal government, especially. They just keep throwing money at these kind of things. And there may or may not be a justifiable economic or even social advantage to uh, their subsidies. And uh, that's the biggest complaint, too, that I've heard. Too many subsidies. Well, as Sam Donaldson once said, who used to be with ABC and had a big uh, sheep ranch out in uh, New Mexico, he said, I am opposed to these wool subsidies. But as long as they're offering them, I'm going to take them. So maybe that's the way we have to look at it, that you have to put uh, these things in different quadrants and then address them one at a time. Exactly. You got to start with not offering them. It's just like electric vehicles. True. And and you, you you're right now. I'd like to buy a new little uh, compact pickup, but uh, you can't get one for four or five months if you ordered it today. And in the meantime, the uh, manufacturer is totally paranoid about getting electric vehicles out there that may be suitable for some areas and some people's driving habits. But out here in farm country and the flyover country, there's just too many issues. We don't know what the maintenance issues are going to be, what the long-term costs are going to be. And it's just being subsidized to the umpteenth degree in all quarters. And that just seems like an inappropriate way to grow an economy. Well, range anxiety is the number one thing everybody with an electric vehicle has, that they are afraid they're going to run out of juice before they get back home. And if so, what are they going to do? 
And uh, my father-in-law has one because it's fun to buy it. He was out on the front edge to buy it, but they are very careful how far they drive. <laughs> Sunday trips primarily and go back home. And then his wife cusses the vehicle because she's afraid they're not going to make it home. But they always do. So. <laughs> well, so, like I say, you know, I know some people that it's, it's ideal. It's just like, you know, sometimes the electric electrification of things is 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 kind of kind of neat uh, as long as you can get the batteries uh, to perform long enough uh, we really like electric uh, trimmers uh, leaf blowers uh, i've got a little electric chainsaw you know and you can interchange the batteries between every one of these little tools and it sure beats the heck out of an extension cord uh, and and so it's a very practical application and it's not not exorbitantly expensive to do that and so it's very easy to do and so there's a good application for the technology but to put it in an 18-wheeler i think we're uh, whistling dixie on that one well i saw the other day they were doing a comparison it seemed to be a fair one of the amount of electrical energy it would take uh and they were using uh, gm's biggest vehicle the hummer they've got now that's electric and they said the power in it would run 1700 bicycles yeah so it takes a huge amount of energy for those big heavy vehicles but i i think the evolution is there uh whether the government causes it or not and i think that the potential for hydrogen might be there for big vehicles but right now we're trying to take batteries and put them in vehicles that they don't seem to work in for real america and then make you you make you use them but you know if we keep talking about this we'll go through an evolution here that'll be interesting hydrogen will be an evolution i think i think you're right gene it's a pleasure to talk to you each time may you have a good summer you and all of your family and uh, we'll check back with you again in a few months and see how that crop is done you bet have fun on the big mississippi thanks for listening to better than nothing I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.